less than nothing performance on size. Uh, Hegel and the Shadow of Dialectical Materialism. Both of these books will be on sale outside, and Slavoj said he will be putting his hex on the <laughs> or his thumbprint, whichever you prefer. So uh, that's our housekeeping for that. So welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great pleasure for me to be here because you know, at my age, no wonder I'm one of those hard rock conservatives for whom everything that happened in pop music happened between 65 and 75. <laughs> <laughs> and from that era, I must say, I was just the usual guy. For example, I really loved not only Grateful Dead, but also Jefferson Airplane and so on and so on. And I still listen to them. So it's very nice for me to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Just to tag on that, what bothers me is we have channels here where you can select music by different categories, like Christmas music and so forth, and that period is called classical oldies. So uh, I sometimes feel uncomfortable in selecting that channel, but I do love that music enough to ignore the, the, what it says about us. Yeah, but, okay, I'd like to give you an idea. There was a rumor that I had some kind of affair or whatever with Lady Gaga. <laughs> to some of her music, I simply don't yeah. get it. It's not my world. Yeah. But, but maybe also, maybe there is something deeper at it, because even with some new popular novels, for example, I don't know, Harry Potter, I don't get it why it's so popular. Yes. <laughs> books which are not really well written and so on and so on. No. I, I'm, I'm losing contact with it. And I like it. I, I always prefer this uh, psychotic withdrawal. Like you are in your world, you think you are the center of the world. And when something happens around you, more and more, I believe that the most rational hypothesis is the Truman Show hypothesis. <laughs> <laughs> organized by some agency. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm the Lady Gaga. I, I heard uh, a debate as to whether you were better off denying that or just saying no comment. I was stupid to deny it. <laughs> I was told that it would be much better to do what the, the PR guy of Lady Gaga did. Yeah. He said, no comment, which of course then exploded, Reason. generated m many more rumors, and so on and so on. No, no but on the other hand, I, uh, now I'm talking very sincerely. It may be shocking what I just said, but you know, the usual accusation about us radical leftists, this extinct race, whatever, no, is that, uh, that we are totalitarians who, in a typical totalitarian way, we love humanity as such, but have no true empathy to concrete suffering people. Like, yes, we do everything for humanity, even if it means ignoring, torturing, killing people, no? And I say, yes, that's exactly what I think. Humanity as such did some great things, great works of art, and so on and so on. Most of the people that I know are boring idiots. There was no concept. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I accept this. I even sympathize here with Hegel, who said something wonderful 
apropos ancient Greece, when Hegel was speaking about uh, uh, about uh, 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 Peloponnesian War, he said, he wrote that uh, the only spiritual gain, gain, that is to say, result for humanity of Peloponnesian War was the book that the great historian Thucydides <laughs> wrote about. <laughs> they had, thousands had to die so that the book could be written about it. Now, of course, Hegel was not a cynic, and I am not. I am well aware, my God, to be a little bit pathetic. You see one person being tortured, suffer, and then you say, hell, hell, who cares about big spiritual uh, gains if I can uh, save this person. But then, in, in a certain sense, admit it. This is nonetheless true for our attitude. Wouldn't you say that the whole point of Elizabethan England was to produce Shakespeare? <laughs> and there's even something beautiful in it. Like, this is the real result of Elizabethan England. And now, I am coming back to your lovely city. Maybe, just maybe, you happened so that Hitchcock could make his virtue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to get to some of the uh, substance of this book and to, so I agree with you. Yeah. Let's stop. Let me stop bullshitting. <laughs> No, don't do that, but you often say, and I, I, it's, a, it's a really good way to think about things, that the job of philosophers is not to provide answers, it's to make sure we ask the right questions, right? Absolutely, because I think this is our problem today. Uh, maybe, uh, some old leftists, but not only leftists, also traditional liberals, whoever, uh, think that we have to look for answers, proposals, whatever. But I'm claiming you know, there is something to be done before this, to see if we simply are asking the right questions. And I think this maybe would be the best for everyday use, and I'm not patronizing you. We all need this. When we, uh, we, I talk about critique of ideology, okay, what would be the everyday use of it? Is to confront the problems which we are facing, let's say ecology, uh, racism, sexism, religious fundamentalism, whatever, and before approaching it in a pseudo-practical way, like how to resolve them, how to cope with these problems, to ask, are we formulating the problem in the right way. The mystification is already there. This is for me ideology. Ideology is not dealing with false questions or false problems. Problems are real, but the way you formulate the problem, a problem, you mystify it. Like one example that I often use, uh, uh, how do we today predominantly fight uh, sexism, racism, and other forms of intolerance. Precisely, I already fell into ideology, that we formulate it or perceive it as a problem of tolerance or intolerance. This is not self-evident. 
I made a simple test. Go to the web and download some speeches writing by Martin Luther King. And put search tolerance intolerance and you will see he practically never mentions it. For him it would have been ridiculous to say that racism is a problem of tolerance. White people don't tolerate us in our blacks or whatever. No, it's not this. It's a problem of, of economic justice, political rights, and so on and so on. So I claim that here already ideology enters. Why do we, this is not self-evident, to perceive problems of racism and sexism as problems of tolerance. This is typical for our, what in my jargon I call, post-political era, where uh, on the one hand, we have economy, and then our main ideological struggles are precisely about gay rights and so on, uh, uh, cultural, are basically cultural struggles, and I claim culture is becoming our new nature. We have plurality of positions, and the problem is how these multiple positions should coexist. Like, you can't change them, so let's organize. But this is not enough for me. This is not enough for me. This is just the standard liberal position. We have plurality of cultures, modes of life, and so on and so on. Let's take care that they can coexist. This is not my, this is not my horizon. Uh, so again, this would be one example. The other obvious example, how we cope with ecology. On the one hand, of course, it's not enough if we perceive it simply as a technological problem. But I also oppose so-called deep ecology. You know, all the stuff of we are violating Mother Earth and so on and so on. I claim that, uh, crazy as it may sound, but the first step towards really radical ecology is to accept that nature doesn't exist. No. Don't be afraid. I'm not proposing some crazy subjective idealism. We just imagine it. Uh, all I'm saying is that we should drop this implicit image of nature as some kind of a balanced homeostatic circular movement, which then we humans, with our uh, hubris, with our excessive imperialist attitude, disturb. And the point is somehow to return to balance. The situation is much more tragic. There is no natural balance to which we can return. If Earth is our mother, it's a crazy bitch of a mother. <laughs> about the example that I always use. Think about oil reserves. Are we aware what kind of mega, mega catastrophe that should have it should have happened, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions years ago, so that we have oil reserves today. Nature is not natural balance. Nature has catastrophes all the time. Why do we spontaneously prefer this view of natural balance? Because if we are exclusively responsible for natural imbalance, well, it makes it much easier to fight it, you know, because it simply means we have to change a little bit our style of life. Here comes, comes the second ideology, 
And here you in San Francisco, you need a little bit of Soviet dictatorship. <laughs> <laughs> you are one of the capitals of what I intended to call a mode of life economy. You know, instead of confronting large-scale problems, how to reorganize our entire economy, you know, you, but, but I'm not really blaming you, we are all doing it in my time. You know, we like to play these small games, like, you know, oh, did you recycle all the bottles? <laughs> if you follow these small rituals every day, somehow, oh, you did something great for Mother Nature, and so on and so on. This is ideology at the, every, at the everyday level. Because uh, it gives you white ideology. Crucial is how it gives you this deep, small, but deep feeling of satisfaction. This is why I claim that uh, all this recycling stuff, I'm doing it, of course it should be done. I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying don't fa fall in love with it as if this is already the real thing. This is an easy way, just like this would have been, not the poor religion, <coughs> opium for the people today. <coughs> Do a little bit of recycling, you did your duty, and so on and so on. Because ask yourself really, really deeply, why are you doing this? I don't think even you, we are all too cynical, really believe that this will change things. No, it makes you feel good. My God, you yeah. see, even when I drink Coke, yeah. by putting the can in a separate bag, uh, I am doing something for Mother Earth. I'm part of the movement of solidarity and so on and so on. And it's even the same, I'm saying this uh, with all acerbic evil that there is in me. For example, this looks nice, but why do you really buy organic apples. <laughs> I claim I'm buying them. So no, I'm not talking to you. But I claim that most of us in our everyday life are way too cynical. We don't we have at least doubts about it. But again, the reason we buy it is this most of us it's uh, my evil dream is usually that uh, the origin of organic apples. I know it's not like that, but that's my negative fantasy that a farmer produces tons of biologically, genetically modified apples that we all love and so on. And then, you know, some of them nonetheless got rocky and so on. And he said, why don't I put this aside and sell them for double price? <laughs> no. What I'm saying is only this then. Even if we have our suspicions, we buy them. Because, again, it makes us feel well, you see, I'm doing something for Mother Earth, and so on and so on. And here I uh, consider almost a work of a genius, the institution of Starbucks. Uh, it's ideology at its purest, and the guy, the owner, I listened to some interviews with him, is well aware of it. Why? You know what's the trick of Starbucks. You buy there a cappuccino, which costs more, then the usual cappuccino, but as they tell you on all the posters and so on, 1% goes to some stupid Guatemala children, 1% goes to say, some rainforest, blah blah. Why is this ingenious? In the old times of traditional leftist anti-capitalism, we were consumers. But then we 
felt bad, and you had to do something extra, like do something for society, blah, blah, outside consumerism. Starbucks is offering you a perfect solution. No, the price for your extra consumerist duty to society is included into the price of it. Additional 50 goes for your goes for your civil civic duty. You contribute. You know everything is covered: social solidarity, Kinder in Guatemala, rainforest, and so on and so on. So it's a wonderful solution of what I call once the chocolate laxative solution. You know? In the price of a commodity, anti-consumerism is, as it were, included. So it makes you feel well. You see, when I go to Starbucks. My daughter, I'm also doing something for children in Guatemala and so on and so on and so on. This, this, you see, what's my point? My point is that it makes your life much easier. It basically allows you for a little bit of a price to a little bit, you pay a little bit more, but you don't have to worry. What's the problem? I'm doing my duty, I'm recycling, I'm contributing for some children in Africa, whatever you want, and so on and so on. This is ideology of our daily life today. And here, for me, critique of ideology really is operative, should work. I agree with those who claim that 1990, the disintegration of communist regimes was also the end of a certain type of ideology. The, these big causes and so on, you know, fight for communism, democracy, nation, whatever. But uh, even, but what we are getting today is, is anything more ideology, but ideology which is simply part of our daily texture. Because how are we interpolated, addressed? by society today. There is apparently no ideology, to put it in simpler terms. What does society expect of us? What do we perceive as duty? What are we called upon to do? I would say something like a little bit enlightened hedonism. No? No wonder that Dalai Lama is so popular, no? Something like uh, be true to yourself. Realize your potentials, live authentically, and so on and so on. This is how things appear to be. My thesis, this is why I'm dealing with religion so yeah. much, is that this liberation is false. It's not true that we live, as conservative fundamentalists claim, that we live in a hedonist era, whatever. We maybe believe more than ever today, but we practice our beliefs. This is what is so unique for me in our era. And this is the truth of so-called uh, cynical functioning of ideology. Beliefs exist, paradoxically, we practice them, even if no one effectively in the first person uh, believes. The phenomenon here is the one that I described already in a 10 years old book of mine, Plague of Fantasy, using the term of an Austrian friend of mine, a young philosopher called Robert Faller, interpassivity. You know, in so-called primitive societies, you get weepers, women whom you pay, that they cry for you <laughs> at the funeral, so you can 
deal with inheritance, whatever, more interesting, they try to use. Then, a similar thing in Tibetan Buddhism, maybe others. You know, like, you put your prayer on a piece of paper, you look, put paper into the praying wheel, and it just turns around and, like, objectively, through that turning, praying uh, wheel, you, you are praying. You can think about sexuality privately, it doesn't matter. You are afraid. Now you will say, yeah, yeah, this goes for so-called primitive societies. No, we are the same. Think about what I think is, and I really mean it, maybe the greatest contribution of the United States to world culture. Can't laughter on TV. You know, when TV set laughs for you, we are the same thing. You return home tired as a dog. You put on TV, let's say you watch some uh, friends, cheers, some comical and you just stare as an idiot. TV set laughs for you. The point is that at the end, you feel relieved as if you have laughed. And my point is that something similar is happening with beliefs. The usual way, already in traditional societies, is to believe through others. We may be cynical personally, but we, as a rule, always need another naive entity, as it were, to believe for us. We just need to presuppose that entity. That entity need not to exist. Like, look at Santa Claus. I ask a parent, do you believe in Santa Claus? Parents, of course, answer me, I'm not stupid, I mean, of course not. I buy the present. Okay, but then you ask the child, the child, do you believe in Santa Claus? Of course, the child says, I'm not stupid. I pretend to, not to offend my parents. <laughs> Nobody believes, but the belief functions as a, as it were, we practice it, nonetheless. And I think that this is, if you allow me to repeat, a joke which I repeated at least 50 times, 10 times in my books, but it's a perfect example, so I will nonetheless repeat it. It's the eternal story about Niels Bohr, the Copenhagen, uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, when he was asked by a friend, why do you have a horseshoe above the entrance to your home? Horseshoe is in Europe a superstitious item. The idea is it prevents evil spirits from entering the house. And he says, of course, I don't believe it believe in it. This is bullshit, superstition. Then the friend insisted, but why do you have it then? Niels Bohr gave a perfect answer. I have it there, not because I believe in it, but because I was told that it works even if you don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't believe in democracy, whatever, but somehow we practice it because it's, as if, you know, it works even if we don't. So, again, uh, this is what interests me so much today. If in the old times, if these old times ever existed, I'm not sure, because, uh, we thought that we believed, but then in our inner life we were cynical, mocking authorities. Today we live in a strange era more and more where publicly we are cynics and so on. What we conceal from ourselves is not our doubts and disbeliefs, but precisely we conceal from ourselves our beliefs. This is what Jacques Lacan, my big reverence in psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. that says the true formula of atheism is not 
God is dead, but God is unconscious. Our beliefs are, are in the unconscious. And can you give you the last example just to present this logic to you? When I was young in a communist country, liberal communist but still communist country, uh, uh, there was a moment, it really happened, it was crazy, when a rumor started to circulate that there is not enough toilet paper in the stores. So, what was the reasoning of an average citizen? I mean, communists at some point, at least, later they screwed it up, didn't do such a terribly bad job in economy at that point. So, we all knew there is enough toilet paper. No reason for panic. But each of us was thinking like this. But what if there are many people who believe this rumor? So then we go to the stores and buy too much toilet paper, and then really there will not be enough toilet paper. So to act against this case, let me go to the store and buy a lot of toilet paper. So you see, everyone accepted that there is really no crisis. But with this reference to, there are some naive people who think there is not enough toilet paper the result was that there really was not enough toilet paper. But you see the point. No naive guy needs to exist. We just have to presuppose that it exists. And I think it's very difficult to break out of this presupposed belief. It's easy for you not to believe. What is much easier, much, sorry, much more difficult is to get rid of this other naive entity, symbolic entity, person who believes for you. This is why, believe me or not, I will conclude now. <laughs> this is my criticism of the movie that I intensely dislike. It has nice moments, but it's a false one. Roberto Benigni, Life is Beautiful, La Vita è Bella. You know, the story is precisely about this presupposed belief. You remember, father is taken to Auschwitz with his young son to enable his son to survive father events to meet for him. This is not really a prison, it's just a big competition. We can leave at any moment, but if we stay here, to the end we will get a big prize, and so on and so on. Okay, you know how I think the movie would become much more traumatic and truthful? If, at the very end, you remember it, if you saw the movie, when father is taken away to be shot by the Germans, if father were to learn that the son also just pretended to believe, that the son knew all the time that the story is a fake, but the son, as a good, compassionate son, reasoned like this, my father is telling me bullshit a story, but if I make it clear to him that I don't believe it, it will make the situation much more difficult to my father. So, out of my love for him, I pretend to believe. Admit it, that would have been the truly traumatic moment. I, like, maybe uh, you saw now my, what I ironically refer to as the Fidel Castro aspect of me. <laughs> but you know, Fidel comes and says in Cuba, Comrade, just 10 minutes remark, then if he is very ill, it's three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry. No, no, I think. 
it was fascinating, but what the, the point that I was waiting for is that... I'll say one thing to Lou, I have it. I'm at that point. Yeah. I'm going to hand that to you, but in a second, is the analysis of our famous philosopher Donald Rumsfeld regarding unknown knowns and so forth, but the fourth one that you had about the things that we don't know that we know. Of that one, you are right, I am grateful to you. Because of that point, I am really a little bit proud of, I am bullshitting, but they are not. You know why? Because I think this is our duty as public intellectuals, to present cases which can be explained in non-technical terms, they concern public persons, everybody knows the case, but nonetheless, you get the, the point. Sorry, just to explain this, maybe some of you don't know it. I was, of course, referring to that famous uh, 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 Rumsfeld press conference where, in justifying attack on Iraq, he played a little bit epistemologies, developed some kind of theory of knowledge, where <laughs> he mentioned three categories. Things we know that we know them. There are things that we know, and we know that we know them. Like, I am in San Francisco, and I know that I am in San Francisco. Then he said, there are things that we don't know, but we know that we don't know them. Like, for example, how many people are here in this hall? Well, I don't see the seats back where maybe people are living already. <laughs> I don't know exactly how many people are here, but I know that I don't know that. And then, this was to raise the stakes for the attack of Iran, Rankfer said, but there are also things that we don't know, and we even don't know that we don't know that. Like, the idea was, what if Saddam has some mega-secret arms, whatever, about which we even don't know that we don't know that. You know, they are totally out of our horizon. Uh, my point, and this was for him, the true justification of that. My point was that he forgot the fourth category, which is the crucial one, which is the category of ideology. Remember, known, known, unknown, known, no, sorry, known, 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 unknown, I know that I don't know something, then unknown, unknown, totally outside, what's the fourth category? Of course, the inversion of known, unknown. It's not that I know that I don't know something, it's something that I do know, but I don't know that I know it. This is, for example, what we call unconscious, ideological, racist, sexist, cultural prejudices, and so on. You don't even know that they regulate your life. And my claim is that this is maybe the cause of all the troubles of American occupation of Iraq. All the set of cultural, ideological presuppositions and so on that regulate, structure, how you act in reality, but you, are, you think you are directly dealing with reality, you are not even aware of this complex set of prejudices. And this is what we, if we are public philosophers, public intellectuals, especially as philosophers, should make people aware of. Yeah. Not to teach them something new, I don't think we philosophers can do this, but to make them aware of their unknown knowns, yeah. of all their 
and this is, but wait a minute, not only in the bad sense of the term, but nonetheless, of the whole set of presuppositions that structures their approach to the work without them being, uh, without them being uh, aware of it. This is maybe today more important than ever. All the ethnic tensions, intercultural dialogue, our relationship with nature, and so on and so on, is structured by this type of unknown knowns. That's what I thought was the great, and it's a great point that you make in this book. Um, before we go to audience questions, uh, there's kind of a macro point that I think we all think about a lot, and I would love to have you share your views with it on us. We have read Fukuyama and we understand yeah. uh, the theory that uh, global capitalism and uh, free market economy and so forth is at least ostensibly the end point of this uh, dialectic. But we're looking today at an, a world that doesn't seem to be fitting that pattern anymore. We have this the state, what we call state capitalism in Asia or Asian capitalism. We have problems that it doesn't seem that uh, our system can handle, such as you talk about ecology, uh, intellectual property, and um, new forms of apartheid, and, and genetic engineering. So where, as we think about what the right questions are to ask with regard to um, societal solutions, or at least challenges to these, where do we, where do we start thinking about it? fundamental question today, because just with regard to Fukuyama, one has to admit he is nonetheless, in a certain basic sense, an honest guy. Yeah. For example, he recently publicly claimed that the very fact of biogenetics, that is to say the realist perspective that relatively soon we, and the problem is who is this we, private company, state, or who will be able to directly manipulate our psychic uh, properties and so on. The very prospect of this type of biogenetic manipulations, he said, renders obsolete my thesis on the end of history. So Fukuyama himself is no longer a, what they call him Fukuyama is. This is my problem here. Of course, in a certain immediate sense, Fukuyama was right. 1990 was the end of a certain epoch. It was, let me be brutal, I'm saying this as some kind of communist epoch. 1990 was the end of the 20th century. By this I mean a certain epoch which defined 20th century, a certain epoch of the radical and other types of left, Soviet communism, Western, social democratic, welfare state, and so on and so on. That time is over. We have to accept it. And even now, it's difficult to accept it. I mean, listen, it's not only Occupy Wall Street. I was in Greece. I debated with protesters and listened to them with sympathy. But then I asked them, I like to ask these embarrassing questions. And they all amount to one the same point. What do you want? Okay, it's easy to protest. But I don't like this moralist protest, like, you know, when people say, enough of financial speculations. Uh, 
but people shouldn't serve money, money should serve people. Well, that's bullshit, Hitler would have agreed with you. you know? <laughs> when I ask them in Spain, in, in uh, Greece and so on, okay, what do you want? Do you want the return to the old social democratic state? Do you want just a little bit more honesty in the existing system? Do you, do you want something more radical and so on and so on? We don't have answers here. And I don't pretend to offer any easy answers here. All I'm saying is, and that's more of a tragic position, I think, that I'm in. All I'm saying is the following. A, uh, capitalism is, liberal capitalism as you know, is approaching a certain uh, limit. By this I mean the following. There is a whole series of problems you enumerated them, the main I see, ecology, uh, uh, the biogenetic prospect, new forms of apartheid, of inclusion, inclusion, uh, intellectual property. I think capitalism in the longer term will not be able to deal with it, to fully commodify knowledge. Uh, I think that all these problems are basically communist problems, the problems of commons, of something that should be our the shared substance of our life. Nature is not yours or mine. Nature is out there for all of us. Knowledge should be like this. Biogenetic shouldn't be controlled, and so on. Now, so communism for me is the name of a problem. And I'm the first one to be fully aware that uh, communism in the 20th century style is definitely not the solution. We will have to deal with this problem. Now, my point is the following one, that, as you also very nicely hinted at, an additional, maybe crucial problem is what is wrongly, of course, it has nothing to do with Asia, poetically called capitalism with Asian values, China, Singapore, and so on. Are we aware how tragic the lesson of it is? Because, let me be honest, I don't like to bullshit. Till now, there was one good argument for capitalism. You had here and there 10, 20 years of dictatorship, but sooner or later, when things start to function more normally, capitalism did always engender a demand for democracy. What I am afraid is that what we poetically refer to as capitalism with Asian values means that this eternal marriage between capitalism and democracy, and I'm not talking in any obscure Marxist sense of some authentic democracy. I mean simple democracy that we enjoy in some countries, this marriage is approaching divorce. What's so dramatic about China? I admire Chinese people, they're creative, whatever you want, but the problem is this one, that we have there a system which is economically a mode of capitalism even more dynamic, destructive, constructive, dynamic, creative, exploding with, uh, uh, exploding with uh, uh, new modes of production, and so on and so on. Capitalism, but which functions perfectly with an authoritarian political system. And it's not only China, it's also uh, Singapore and so on. And I think this is gradually expanding. What was the result of the last crisis? That even in Europe, the bastion of democracy, in, for example, in Greece and in Italy, and it's spreading, the latest fashion is technocratic expert government. 
which de facto means, I wouldn't say a suspension of democracy, but some kind of a, some kind of a, some kind of a, I don't know how to call it exactly. Democracy is, is yeah, why not? Precisely not abolished, but suspended. In the sense that people seem to accept enough of democratic gains, only some neutral experts can take us out of this, and the irony is that these experts have been usually precisely the same guys, bankers, and so on, who brought us <laughs> into this. No? What I'm saying is that this maybe is the last poetic revenge of 20th century communists on Fukuyama. Yeah. Okay, you won, but we, ex-communists, are now emerging as the best managers of your global capitalism. <laughs> Definitely better managers than standard liberal capitalist regimes, and so on and so on. This, for me, is a real problem. I don't see any easy solutions. I'm not bullshitting. I'm not saying, oh, a new Leninist party is there or whatever. I even, I'm ready to go pretty far here. I also don't believe in what is really the secret treasure in the heart of every leftist. There are authentic leftists who are ready to drop, yeah, welfare state is at its end, yeah, Stalinism, 20th century communism was a horror, but let me say, but what about those authentic, communities of cooperatives, direct democracy, and so on and so on. No, this can play a subordinate role. This is not a solution. So, what I, but what I'm saying is that, okay, then nothing will happen. I don't like the society which we emerged if nothing will change. If nothing will change, things will soon change even more radically. I predict that if the existing global system is, as it were, left to itself, a new authoritarian society with new apartheid, new divisions, and so on, will gradually emerge, which will not be the old fascism. I absolutely don't like the way, whenever you get some authoritarian tendencies, people say, fascism, fascism. This means the uh, laziness of thinking. The easiest way, instead of confront what's going on today, is to simply to apply an old label. No, it will be more kind of a hedonist, permissive authoritarian regime. At the level of private life, you do whatever you want. You can have sex, men, women, dogs, cats, make your choice. And all, all these freedoms and so on, but it will be a tightly controlled society where big economico-political decisions will simply not be a matter of democratic choice in any meaningful sense. You got the first taste of it. Remember, I mentioned it in one of my smaller books. Are you aware what happened in, it's a detail, but I think a significant detail, what happened in 2008 when the recent financial crisis exploded? Do you remember what happened? First, Congress voted with two-thirds against. They rejected the first mega sum, now it's peanuts for us, uh, 750 billion mm -hmm. to save the banks. Did you notice what then happened? Then the entire political elite, Bush, McCain, Obama, all of them, addressed the Congress intensely and the message was a clear one. Listen, don't bullshit now. This simply has to be done. This is not time for some stupid democratic debates. It has to be done immediately. And one week later, do you remember? The Congress 
changed position two-thirds four. It was de facto the first step into, no, I'm not saying in suspension of democracy, but in passing a message that when we have really hard decisions to make, screw democracy, no debate, it simply has to be done. So, you know, uh, I think that when people tell me, why do you stick to your utopias, but things are still going on relatively well, let's protect what we have. Here comes my pessimism. I think that the true utopia is the idea that things will be able to go on indefinitely the way they are, with our relative prosperity. I am here more of a pessimist. I think in 10, 20, 30 years, if we don't start to act now, we will find ourselves in a much more oppressive, economically much more brutal, more racist, whatever you want, society. Writings on the wall are everywhere. For example, now I'm a little bit tired of America bashing, you know, like it's so easy for us arrogant Europeans to come and decrease civilization. If anything, Europe is so terribly regressing. In what sense? Europe is maybe lacking dogmatism. What do you mean by dogmatism? I'm trying now to be a little bit paradoxical and assert this term. There is good unconditional dogmatism. What do you mean by this? That some things are simply accepted. You don't debate about them. You will say this is not good. It is. Let's take women's rape. Sorry to tell you, but I wouldn't like to live in a society where you have to argue that women shouldn't be raped. In fact, I would be very worried if I would have lived in a society where, you know, when somebody gives you that bullshitting, you know, women may protest, but secretly they like it, like all the bullshit. I would like to live in a society where, when someone does go into this type of bullshit, you know, women enjoy it brutally, they just are not honest enough to admit it, and so on, blah, blah, that you don't have to argue. He simply appears as an eccentric idiot, like, not even funny, and so on. And so the true test of public morality, I take this term very seriously, is which are the things that you can say publicly without appearing an idiot. It's not up to me to make judgment on the United States where with the last Republican candidates you have problems of your own. <laughs> <laughs> what the Republican Party is offering now, I really miss even George Bush. Remember <laughs> his wonderful slip of tongue when he said I was I was uh, I was, don't misunderestimate <laughs> Beautiful Freudian sleep. I wonder if Rick Santorum is able to produce a <laughs> But for us in Europe, forms like public speech tolerates forms of brutal racism and so on, which were simply unimaginable, unacceptable 10, 15 years ago. And this should worry us very much. It's not just Breivik, yeah. Oslo, crazy killer, although he's an extremely interesting figure. You know what? And this is what I'm saying to my Jewish friends. Are you aware and telling them what is happening now? Something new is emerging worldwide in the new right. Let's call it by its name, anti-Semitic Zionism. Breivik was on the one hand openly 
pro-Zionist. She said Israel should simply, she wrote in this stupid manifesto, Israel should simply throw out the Palestinians from the West Bank into Jordan, whatever. Like, there he was totally. At the same time, in the West, he was openly anti-Semitic. For example, he says, Western Europe is okay because we know in what circumstances 50 years more ago that Hitler took care of it. There are not too many Jews, but he says United States, uh, 6 million Jews, that's a problem, United States. So now you can say this is the crazy guy up there. Wait a minute, Glenn Beck, your commentator on my favorite TV channel here, Fox <laughs> News, uh, she was exactly the same. He was fired for starting with anti-Semitic remarks here. But you know that at the same time he was totally pro-Zionist. Pro-Zionist in the sense of supporting Israeli policy there. And what really worries me is that some parts of Israeli politics are accepting this game in the sense of we tolerate a little bit of your anti-Semitism if, if part of this anti-Semitism is that you allow us to do our dirty job on the West Bank and so on and so on. It's something so perverse that's going on, this monstrosity of, of anti-Semitic Zionism that we will have to confront it and so on. No, no, the time, times are much darker, I claim, than they appear to be. We don't have easy solutions, which is why, as I emphasized, apropos of Occupy Wall Street, maybe, not maybe, I'm even sure, the first gesture should be, and I love this irony, because it was Wall Street protest, but you know that it's exactly on Wall Street, facing the wall there, that maybe the single greatest figure of American literature, uh, Herman Melville's Bartleby, said his famous houses, I would prefer not to. No? Yeah. Maybe this is the beginning. We don't yet have the language to articulate the new. Maybe at this point we should just say, like when they tell us the big power politics, okay, maybe you have some ideas, come to us, let's talk, make proposals. I would prefer not to. No? We need time. We don't know where we are. You know, if the old Marxist left thought that we basically know where we are, just people are too stupid and we have to educate people to become revolutionaries. No, today is that people are, and they never were, stupid. There is great dissatisfaction, but we lack a basic cognitive, what Fred Jensen, my friend, calls cognitive mapping. Like, where are we? What is happening today with capitalism? What is emerging in China? And so on and so on. We need to start thinking. Don't be afraid of thinking. When I was young, all this rhetoric against uh, universities, which was like, oh, you academics, or you in the West, live in your ivory towers while real people suffer. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, official figures who talk like this today, to prevent thinking. This is what I find so suspicious in this permanent emergency state. Of course, I sympathize with them, but it's used in a false sense. It's, you know, you are, take, you are making your bullshit, engaged in your bullshit, theoretical debates, uh, uh, socialism, capitalism, yes or no, but people are starving in Africa. Why don't we all get together and uh, do something? No, we should think. We don't think enough.
thinking is necessary more than ever today. I even went so far as to claim that if the old formula of Marx was philosophers have only interpreted the world, the time is to change it now, I would say that today maybe we should strategically at least turn it around and say maybe in the 20th century we tried too much to change the world, the time is to interpret it in a new way. So to conclude with a nasty joke which I used in one of my books, maybe you know it, maybe I hope not, in what sense am I a Leninist? Because I wrote a book in a very limited way, just celebrating Lenin, but only at a certain point, I'm well aware of that, how Stalinism emerged out of Leninism. I was thinking about a joke from my youth, communism, living in a communist country, you know, in all our classes, we had these words of Lenin, like when Lenin was asked an advice, what would your advice be to young people? These deep words, stupidities, of course, well, learn, learn, and learn, you know. So we all had this. So with reference to this, the joke goes, and of those meeting jokes, you know. They asked Marx, Engels, and Lenin, what do you prefer to have, a wife or a mistress? Marx, more conservative, said a wife. Engels, Marx's companion, more libertarian, said a mistress. Lenin said, I want both, wife and mistress. Now, people were shocked, like, isn't Lenin a more Puritan conservative? Why? So they asked him, how, Comrade Lenin? Why? Lenin answers, so that I can tell to my wife that I'm with my mistress, and I can tell to my mistress that I'm with my wife. <laughs> then they asked Lenin, okay, but then what do you do? He said, learn, learn. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we need to them. Wife is established order. If mistress means transgressive demonstrations, but which don't reflect. Yeah. Tell your wife you are with mistress, tell mistress you are a wife, and start. Learn, learn, and learn. And that takes us back to asking the right questions, which is where we started. You mean for them? For them. Let yeah. <laughs> me just make a warning to you as it is clear from what I was saying. That, uh, you know, now we've engaged in a dialogue, and I like dialogues. But I like Platonic dialogue. Which one? You know, late Plato. How do late Plato's dialogues look? One guy talks all the time, and the other guy just every 10 minutes says something like, by Zeus, so it is. I was thinking of Galileo's dialogues with Simplicio as yeah, questions. Yeah. Um, we have two microphones. This is our this is our own democracy now. Uh, we have two microphones, and what we'll do is alternate back and forth. Try to make your um, questions into questions, and try to be brief so that we can get in as many as we can. And uh, let's start over here. Okay, so in uh, Sublime Object of Ideology, one thing that you say is the mistake that people make is to look for the traumatic kernel of the problem, they should be looking at the structure of the discourse. Yeah. How do we find the structure of the discourse? Do we need transparency? How do we, how do we see this language that's causing us to ask the wrong questions? Uh, my God, this is uh, a very <laughs> fundamental question, I admit it. Uh, the way I would have applied it, the most brutal, direct application, is 
precisely to returning to the case of anti-Semitism as the example of ideology. For the Nazis, the Jews were the traumatic element, no? We were a harmonious society, Jews entered and so on. The, the basic thing to do here is to claim that no, the image of the Jew in anti-Semitism is invented to cover up the immanent deadlock, the immanent antagonism, contradiction, and so on and so on. Which is why I think, as I wrote a couple of times, that we should apply here uh, this wonderful provocative statement, a little bit made chauvinist, but nonetheless it's correct by Lacan when he says, if a guy is pathologically jealous, obsessed all the time that his wife is sleeping around with other men, Lacan says a very nice precise thing here. Even if this is literally true, and the wife really cheats around, his jealousy is still pathological. Why? Because the problem is not, is the wife really like that? The problem is, why? To, come, to cover up what structural problem, deficiency, personal weakness, does the guy need to, is the guy so obsessed with uh, this? And I think, again, the same goes on for anti-Semitism. This is my old story. Imagine we are in Germany in 35. Imagine you debate with a Nazi and you try to convince him that his image of the Jews is a false one. Jews are not really like that. Of course we should also do this. But basically we should reject this dialogue because again, the problem of anti-Semitism is not are Jews like that or not. For example, let's take the standard Nazi claims. Jews are exploiting Germans. Well, to a point, you have to admit this was true, probably. Some Jews, some, there were also poor Jews, but some Jews were effectively rich. And effectively, in this formal sense, they owned factories, blah, blah, they exploited. Then they say, Jews are corrupting, seducing our German girls. Well, I hope they were also. <laughs> German, Jewish girls. So you know what I mean? If you even accept this level of debate, the result will be some shitty compromise. Yes, Nazis exaggerate a little bit, but no, this is a false debate. The problem is not are Jews like that or not. The problem is why does the entire Nazi edifice need the figure of the Jew? It needs the figure of the Jew to cover up a certain antagonism, blah, 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 and to present, this is why I'm skeptical against this category, to propose an alternate modernity. Nazi project wants capitalism, but without what it perceives as its, as its uh, uh, excesses, you know, competition, moral dynamics, lack of authority, and so on and so on. It wants capitalism without paying, uh, without paying uh, the price for it. So nonetheless, returning to your question, this is why I think that uh, the question that you ask is much deeper, you know, in what sense? I'm even not ready to, because I would have to talk for another, literally, one hour at least. <laughs> in what sense can critique of ideology do its work? I don't always agree, far from it, with your big neo-Keynesian guy, Paul Krugman. Yeah. But one thing that he says, 
impressed me very much. He was asked once by a journalist, I think, that now that we know what we were doing wrong, the wrong decisions in the last 10, 15 years, now we know what mistakes led to 2008 uh, financial chaos. And the journalist asked him, if we were to know all this 10, 15 years ago, would it make a difference? Krugman gives a wonderful answer. No. Even if we knew it, we would nonetheless be doing exactly the same that we were doing. This is an example of uh, unknown knowns and so on. How? You may, you know, this is, in psychoanalysis, we have a wonderful formula for this. It's the formula of fetishist disavowal. In French, je sais bien, mais comment. I know very well, but. Like this is, admit it, the attitude of most of us apropos ecological crisis. I know very well that we may all die, but nonetheless, I don't really take it seriously. I don't really believe it. So the question here is a fundamental one. What type of critique of ideology works today? Some people, I disagree with him here, like Noam, although they are opposite theoretically, Noam Chomsky and my friend Fred Jensen, they have a radical position with which I disagree. Two years ago, a friend of mine had dinner with Noam Chomsky, and Chomsky told him, today, things are so open, reality is so cynical that we don't need any theoretically elaborate criticism. We just have to tell people all the stories of corruption, manipulation, what goes on. Fred Jensen wrote somewhere something similar. But today, public ideology is so cynical. Like in the war on Iraq, everyone knew it's not about freedom. It's about oil, blah, blah, whatever, that we don't need critique of ideology. I think we do. I think this image that reality is so brutal that we just have to show people how things are is deeply, totally wrong. And the, but the point is, again, that the Krugman problem persists. How to do it so that it will be efficient? What I'm developing here is something that I developed, maybe you know it, in some of my previous books, where I draw a certain parallel with psychoanalysis. Many of my psychoanalytic friends, and not people who bluff like me, but real psychoanalysts <laughs> with patients, told me something very interesting. How today a typical patient is, at least middle-class patients, is already, at least up to a point, a theoretically educated patient. You know, he doesn't come to you and say, oh, I was dreaming this, that. No, you see, I think I'm now in a heavy obsession and neurosis. He already comes to you with an interpretation. <laughs> May think this is nice, so I don't have to do my work. No. The price that you pay is that interpretation gets inefficient. The old Freudian dream was that when you interpret, when the patient accepts it subjectively, the symptom should disappear. So, uh, you know this, if I caricaturize it, the classical psychoanalytic scene. Let's say a patient comes to you and says, I was dreaming about, uh, uh, about finding my way through a thick forest where I killed a dragon, and then I break into a castle and save the woman. And then, psychoanalytic, yeah, yeah, the dragon is your father, you killed him, 
the fate of statements, they are always misattributed. It was another lower Nazi that said this. When I hear the word culture, I reach for my gun. Then you first have the capitalist inversion. I like it. If you saw Godard's film, Le Maitre, there Jack Pellens, who plays a rich Hollywood producer, says, whenever I hear the word culture, I reach for my checkbook, which is <laughs> But then what would be the traditional leftist answer? A very beautiful, pathetic one. It would have been something like, when I hear the guns, I reach for my culture. <laughs> Maybe I can do my job of in life. And there is a wonderful anecdote about the great, very problematic, but nonetheless, Marxist philosopher of 20th century, George Lukács, who, you know, he was an honest guy, and in 56 he joined the rebellion against Soviet Union. And then he was almost shot, but nonetheless, they the point, the, the legend is, it's a beautiful story. After the, the rebellion was broken, Soviet army entered Budapest in, at the end of 56. Uh, some special KGB, Soviet secret police units came to arrest him, and an officer approached him and asked him, please give us any all weapons, arms that you have. You know what Lukács did? He put out his pen and says, that's the only arm I have, no. Oh, in <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is that now the problem is is this idea that theoretical enlightenment works, is it to be abandoned? Are we really living in a totally cynical era? Or can we intellectuals still do our job? I've already spoken too long, but I admit it, you touched absolutely the crucial point. I think, yes, we still can do our work. Why? Because, just to give you an indication of where I move, I think that cynicism is an impossible position. You cannot really be cynic. Every cynic has some secret, but for here I'm not cynical. For this I really care, and there we should attack. That, so it's not true that there are cynical people who Whatever you say, they accept it. For example, let me give you one example. Sorry if I talk too much, but I, I was really pissed off. You know what is ideology? I indicate the movie. Lion King. <laughs> when you have that fine ideology, you remember that song, The Cycle of Life, where, uh, uh, of course, it's sang by the father on the top, lions. But the son asks him, but is it evil that we lions eat zebras? And then the father thinks, oh, it's all one big cycle of life. It's true that we eat zebras, but then we die, we turn into sheep, we feed the grass, grass is eaten by zebras, we eat zebras, so it's all big circle of life. Okay, okay, but uh, like to be very cynical, let me return to life is beautiful, the movie. Can you imagine a dialogue there where father, so the son asked the father, Dad, why are the Nazis killing us Jews? Why are they treating us like that? And the father should start to sing, Oh, son, it's all one big cycle. <laughs> Nazis are killing us, but Nazis will die, they will turn into manure, they will grow, they will turn manure, manure will feed the wheat. 
uh, wheat, we'll be eating our grass by cows, and we will eat the steaks from those cows, you do so. It's all one big cycle. <laughs> no, this is pseudo-wisdom, because of course it is a cycle of life. But fuck it, I hope there is a possibility of a cycle of life where like millions of Jews or whoever don't have to be killed. No. We can precisely change the cycle of life. It is why I'm fanatic against this position of wisdom. Oh, it's all part of a larger game or whatever, whatever. This position of wisdom is the formula of ideology, maybe today. Sorry, I didn't answer you precisely. I will be radically sorry. Let's pretend that we are in a democracy. I promise. I will do it in a zen-like way, like clap with one hand. because the idea of common sense was basically you know, the bourgeois attitude reified into an assumption that we, and I think that you're, you're right to say you know, in contemporary political life, to connect it to Rumsfeld, this idea, particularly American political life, of, of not going behind the assumptions. And I think everybody in this room is someone who would investigate their own assumptions and be very critical. The question is how do you, um, as a public intellectual, as a person in, you know, as, as a citizen, how do you push that um, with people who, by their very nature, are so unwilling to sort of dig below that surface, to sort of step back from the common sense? Perfect question, because I agree with you, and, uh, but you also said something similar, but, and I wouldn't even say persons who are in ideology, you know, sorry to put it in these reified terms, but we are naturally lazy. We have to be forced to think. It's not natural to question all these things. Which is why, maybe I'm making a total mistake, but which is why I like to begin, and this then brings me a lot of trouble, with some provocative statement, to at least awaken people. Like, it brought me a lot of trouble, as you maybe know, when I wrote in my violence book, then it was perfect from there, that the problem with Hitler was violent enough. No? Then the Jewish friend told me, what? He should have killed all of us or what? No, I told him, his violence was reactive violence of a weak guy. He was ready to kill millions to avoid doing what would have been a real violence, where nobody would have been killed. The violence of changing the capitalist system, blah, blah, blah. So I think that uh, we need a little bit, not in the Naomi Klein sense, but in this sense of shock, not therapy, shock education. You know, you have to confront people through shocking examples with, uh, with, uh, like, all, with, with, with uh, a totally different perspective. Like, you have to, as it were, awaken them and then provide a different, provide a different example. Because again, I, I here agree with you, and even ready to go to the end. Uh, all 
although, although you know, concerning uh, common sense, it's a very complex question. Because uh, on the one hand, yes, I agree with you, because like Orwell's uh, brave, uh, no, sorry, 1984, is the problem of his analysis there, I claim, is that there is precisely too much of common sense. He has the view that there is some common sense, simple truth, love, and so on, and totalitarian regime oppresses this. A, I doubt if totalitarian regime really functions in, in such a way, you know. Okay, I okay. promise to be So, now we got the, this gentleman. We have fulfilled our closest practice. Uh, committee, party committee will yeah. decide if you really <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Zizek, I have a question about the fourth category, about the things that we know, but yeah. we don't know that we know them. Uh, can you recommend to us a few effective tools that you perhaps found do not be used as much as they should be used to help us uncover those things that govern our actions, whether it's love, hate, jealousy, passion, that's one part, and the second part of the question is how much political correctness and our desire not to hurt each other's feelings and our desire to maintain our relationships and not to rub each other the wrong way, how much of an obstacle that is to uncovering the unconscious and bringing the truth, eliminating the, the hypocrisy, and for us to be more honest with ourselves. I thank you all because you are too good in the sense that you are really, I thought, blocking, you are asking very good questions. You know, like I will precisely give an example from political correctness. Let's take the term of harassment. My God, of course I am opposed to harassment in its literal sense. Sexism, brutal, exploitable, of course I am. But harassment, when you, without, without any further question, accept this term, you buy much more. I claim, ideology. You know, harassment can also mean, and it does mean, it is my everyday experience in the United States, it's a kind of a fear of the other, of the neighbor, as the real neighbor, with all the, you know, harassment means precisely, don't come too close to me as a desiring being, stay at the proper, stay at the proper distance, and so on. Uh, so I claim it's incredible to what extent it's even a class issue. I noticed how often harassment is how upper middle classes experience any close contact with <laughs> if they meet them at all. Because of course, for their high standards, ordinary people use dirty words. They're like, once I gave a class where I used on purpose some very brutal that takes Joe's example. And a lady said, I like what you are doing, but I feel like harassed with your examples. You, they disturb me. And I told her brutally, why do you think that your shitty, authentic experience counts for anything? Harassed, but it can be a wrong feeling. You Americans have a great point in literature here. Maybe the key dialogue in, I think it's Huck Finn. You remember when he helps the black slave to escape or what? But he feels intimately, terribly guilty, sinning, and so on and so on. It's a very authentic feeling, but it's the wrong one. 
So you know what I mean? Uh, like in this sense, I don't buy as non-problematic terms like terms like harassment and so on, or even tolerance. Tolerance often means let's keep a proper distance. Let's it means almost often it almost means its exact opposite. Let me give you a supreme example. Uh, we are apparently living in a hedonist society. You enjoy it. But no, we are, the enjoyment is more and more controlled. It always comes with enjoy, but in a healthy way. Like, you know, like, like uh, Coke, but diet Coke, uh, <laughs> without fat, blah, blah, blah. It should be healthy enjoyment. Even sex, it's horrible. The most depressive experience I had in last month was when I flew here to the States and I read one of those shitty uh, airline journals and they had a big text on sex uh, advising us to make love as awesome as possible but exactly it was sex is good, it helps uh, heart circulation develop your it's horrible I mean my presentation to this was uh, a deep sympathy with, I read a report on South Africa, why don't they use more condoms there to fight AIDS? And a black guy gave a perfect answer for me. He said, uh, making love with a condom is like taking a shower with a rain condom. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, what I want to say is you know, is strictly controlled, rendered safe, there are only two fields, typically, where it looks as if this excessive enjoyment cannot be domesticated. It is, A, drugs up to a point, although now they try to claim there are good and bad drugs, but more importantly, smoking. I don't smoke and I'm opposed to it. But nonetheless, I find this deeply ideological obsession with the danger of smoking and so on. Did you notice how things change in movies? Ask yourself a simple question. Who is still smoking today in Hollywood? Usually something like terrorists if they are in a family before they It's as if, I mean, uh, there is, uh, the, you even are rediscovering the Stalinist practices here. Do you know that there was, I report on this one of the books, that there, in the 60s they published a post stamp with Jackson Pollock, photo portrait with a cigarette. A couple of years later, the cigarette was like in Stalinist retouching the cigarette. You know that now they are even talking of digitally erasing cigarettes from old Hollywood classics so that they've not been shown and so on. So, again, uh, uh, again, I'm not for smoking. I'm just saying that you buy that it's not as innocent as it appears. This would have been this would have been my my examples here. But okay, I would have to go too far into it. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry for the rest of you uh, because we really have to draw this to a close. I remind you of our uh, book signing outside and. Well, it would be happy to answer more questions. And I am grateful to you.